recent issue of World Magazine carried a brief article on the rather unusual security measures used recently in the transference of information from one location to another. I found it fascinating, so I thought I'd share it with you. After spending decades locked away in a secret cabinet with multiple locks inside a triple-locked vault, company officials carefully removed a yellowing piece of paper and transferred it to an undisclosed location. Now, the entire process was carefully guarded, and security was at top alert. The uh, yellowing piece of paper dates back to 1940, and the handwriting on it is by the corporate founder, whose name was Harlan Sanders, and the company he founded, Kentucky Fried Chicken. This is true. That yellowing piece of paper bearing his signature in his own handwriting is the only copy of a secret recipe of 11 herbs and spices, which supposedly holds the key to KFC's worldwide success. (laughs) Corporate executives, this article said, needed to consult the original recipe once more as they prepared to release a new line of chicken strips, which happened this past summer. That consultation prompted the need for heightened security, and so, following their top-level, top-secret meeting, the paper was locked in a small safe, handcuffed to a guard who got into an armored car that took him and the recipe to an undisclosed location where the secret lies safely hidden away once again. This is proof that corporate theft is a real problem. It's also proof that we take our chicken way too seriously. KFC could argue the point. They've made $840 million this year, and I would imagine they would say that's proof they need to keep their little recipe yellowing away on that original piece of paper. But that's the way it is, isn't it? I mean, you keep whatever it is that advances your wealth, your worth, secret. You've got your codes. I've got my codes. We're all a little concerned about identity theft nowadays. In fact, uh, one of our staff, uh, somebody got a hold of his numbers don't know how it happened, but uh, next thing we knew, uh, somebody was using that to email everyone uh, in, on his email address, asking for them, telling them, look, I'm in financial trouble. Long story. Uh, I, I'm embarrassed by the debt. If you could just help me out, don't tell anybody. Just wire this money to this location. Had the account numbers and everything. It was one of our pastors. So, you know, I knew it was, wasn't true. He's, he's amazingly, unbelievably wealthy. So it, it had to be a... <laughs> A farce, but it's actually true. They they tried to track it down. But, you know, you, you you kind of afraid of that kind of stuff. You, you keep your trade secrets to yourself. You, you surround it. If you're a corporation with with filters and, and cameras, right? You lock away your valuables. You lock your front door and your back door at night. Probably lock the door of your car. My my F one fifty has an alarm system built in it. Little red light ding, you know, blinks away on the dash. In fact, whenever anybody in the church parking lot opens their door and dings my truck, it takes your picture and emails it to me. (laughs) Can you imagine KFC saying, we're going to photocopy that recipe, and if anybody would like it, we're going to hand them all out for free? Can you imagine Apple Computer or IBM or General Motors saying, we're going to lay out for you our corporate secrets. We're going to make it available to anybody and everybody who'd like to take a look. Not on your life. 
Well, the wonderful thing is, for those who care enough to look, God is doing something wonderful, if not breathtaking. He is opening the vault of heaven and he is showing us secrets unveiled for anyone who cares to see. Now, for those of you who might be feeling a little overwhelmed by now with all the strangeness of Revelation, you know, the weird animals and the flying creatures and the trumpets and the seals and the markings on foreheads and the horsemen and the blood and the gore and the pestilence and all of that, our Lord stops for a moment as we arrive at this new paragraph. He stops for a moment And then he gives us a a beautiful picture that's easy to see and easy to understand of what the future is going to look like. Corporate executives might lock away a chicken recipe or hide away trade secrets, but God is literally opening the vault and revealing the future for all the world to see. Now, as you turn in your Bibles to chapter 11, which is where we left off, you need to understand that that often in this book we're given a big picture with just a few details, and then later on we're given a close-up snapshot that shows us all of the facts. Well, in this paragraph in chapter 11, we're given the big picture where everything is just sort of condensed, but we see from one end to the other. He gives us the big picture revealing some wonderful secrets about future coming days. And it all begins with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Notice verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now this trumpet, the seventh trumpet, is the last in the sequence of these trumpets. It is not to be equated with the last trumpet that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, where he talks about that trumpet and the sound of that will in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. Well, the seventh trumpet here in Revelation covers an extended period of time, not an instantaneous in the twinkling of an eye moment. In fact, the seventh trumpet will call for prolonged waves of judgment that will be given to us in close-up snapshots later on in the book of Revelation. Now verse 15 tells us, you notice, that this trumpet sounds and loud voices in heaven were saying. Now we've already encountered that word saying, legantes. It's a, an amplification of a ducin, which literally refers to, to singing. These, these hosts of heaven These angels, separated from the church, which we'll sing in a moment. So these are angels, are singing. And what they are singing, the word saying means these are the lyrics of their wonderful, wonderful hymn. Now we've already learned how many angels there are that sing. They're on ready. They sing it several times in the book of Revelation. And they're referred to simply as a myriad of angels. Myriad means 10,000. It was the largest unit used in Greek mathematics in the ancient world. And whenever you see the phrase myriads of myriads, it means 10,000 times 10,000. Well, if you do a little math, you know, then we have about 100 million angels plus singing what we're about to look at. And you can't imagine, as I can't, the incredible sound this will be of praise. One author wrote that if you wanted to hear 
a little bit of what this sounded like, what you ought to do is try to listen to Handel's Messiah at some point in the future, especially its Hallelujah Chorus. In fact, George Frederick Handel took the words as a foundation to his oratorio, especially his Hallelujah Chorus, from this text, this chapter and verse, verse 15. Notice again, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This is what the prophet Daniel saw and prophesied of when he, when he predicted. One, he says, I saw like a, a son of man was coming, and to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom, then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one, that is you, that's your inheritance, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. So God here informs us that he's going to open up the vault of heaven, literally the vault of the future, and show us the end of history. And and, and you could say it's all over but the shouting or the singing, I guess, in this text. And what I want want to do is pull out several elements that are found within these angelic lyrics. First, I want you to notice the singularity of the coming kingdom. The angels sing the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Not kingdoms. Proper translation is kingdom. One kingdom. And that sounds a bit strange. That's why the interpreters inserted the plural to try to make sense of it. But it's intended to be rather different because he's intended to reveal a secret and a perspective that is wonderful. You see, even though our world right now is separated into a thousand kingdoms plus, with all their princes and potentates and parliaments and presidents, here's the astonishing truth. All the world's diverse national, political, social, cultural, linguistic, and even religious groups are in reality one kingdom under the dominion of one king. Who is that king? Well, three times in John's gospel, our Lord referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Now, follow me. On one occasion, Jesus was accused of being empowered by Satan. You remember they, they told him that you're just casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul or, or the Lord of the flies, literally the devil. And our Lord responded by exposing that rather ridiculous logic when he said, if Satan is casting out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? Singular kingdom, Matthew twelve twenty six. Furthermore, when Christ was tempted by Satan in uh, the wilderness, the devil showed our Lord all of the individual kingdoms, didn't he? All the presidents, princes, and potentates. He showed them all of that. But then he said to the Lord, interestingly enough, he said, if you will worship me, I will allow you to rule over this domain. Singular. Here's the secret exposed. The world is temporarily ruled by this usurper, Satan, which God has given delegated authority to do so. The world's systems 
Separated though they may be by language, culture, and border, they are literally under his thumb, so to speak. They might think they have the power to do whatever they want. They might think they know where they're going, but in reality, they are under the temporary delegated sway and dominion of this deceiving angel of light. The nations then do not just happen to or coincidentally happen to follow other gods and just so happen to really not like the name of Jesus Christ and despise the believer and often persecute as they are doing even today around the globe, the Christian. The nations are actually influenced as puppets on strings, manipulated, as the Apostle Paul wrote, by the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. Now, although Satan is a usurper and not the permanent and rightful king, he is the present delegated ruler of earth's kingdom. And he rules through those who disbelieve the gospel and who themselves hate the name, hate the authority, hate the thought of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And this is a frightening thing to consider in relation to our world today and the unbelieving world. The world system is in the grip of the enemy of the true and living God. Certainly his power and rule and reign is delegated and temporary, and yet he is considered by Jesus Christ himself the current prince of the power of the air. He will not loosen his grip without a fight. Even though he knows the end of the book, even though I can only imagine what an expert the enemy is in this book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, even still... He and those who follow him will not give away the kingdom when Christ comes. It will have to be wrested away from them. I want you to notice then not only the singularity of the kingdom. It's really one kingdom from the perspective of God. But I want you to notice secondly the certainty of the kingdom. This kingdom the angels are singing about. The kingdom of the world which has become the kingdom of our Lord. The verb translated which has become the kingdom of our Lord is a proleptic aorist. You don't need to know that for the quiz so don't write it down. But what I want you to get is the point. It's a rather amazing tense. What it means is it's viewing an event in the future as historical reality. And in fact historical truth here and now. It's that certain. Listen, at this point on the planet, remember the context of chapter 11. We're in the middle of the tribulation, just beyond the middle point, when Satan has consolidated his global influence. We're about to be introduced to the Antichrist and given a biography of this this individual later on in chapters 12, 13 especially. But he's consolidated his powers, setting himself up as God through his puppet Antichrist. People might be led to, to believe that God has lost everything. God has lost control. But listen, do you hear singing? Do you hear music? You can hear it here in heaven. 100 million angels plus are singing the kingdom as an historical reality and fact even now is the kingdom of the Lord. Everything is going right on schedule with our sovereign Lord's plan. He knows the future 
And before it happens, he has the angels go ahead and sing about it. He knows the future and unveils its secret to the hosts of heaven and through the apostle John to the entire human race, those who want to find out about it. God knows the future. And frankly, it's simply this. God wins. It's already in the books. It's in the book. Now, thirdly, I want you to notice not just the singularity of the kingdom and the certainty of the kingdom, but the sovereign of the kingdom. Look again. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, the title Lord or Kuryu is often used as a title for Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, it's most often used to refer to God the Father. So you could understand this phrase and maybe mark in the margin of your Bible, the kingdom of God the Father. It's a reference to God the Father. So what does that last part mean? And of his Christ. Christu, the Greek word translated Christ, simply means anointed one. Or you could render it Messiah. So what the angels are singing are lyrics about the anointed one of God the Father who will rule. That's what he means. In fact, they're singing lyrics that reveal the fulfillment of prophecy from centuries past. I mean, how could David, the psalmist, have known had not the Holy Spirit breathed through him the truth of secrets yet unexplained to him? Listen to one of them as he, as he uses the same terminology in the Greek Old Testament known as the Septuagint. As the nations wage war against the Lord and his Christ. Same idea. In other words, the futility of the nations who wage war against God the Father and his anointed son, the Messiah. In fact, David goes on in chapter 2 verse 12 of Psalms to say this. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling and do homage to the Son. Capital S-O-N. Way back in David's day, he is singing about God the Father and God the Son, the Anointed One, the Messiah who will reign. In fact, it's hinted at the unity of their sovereign rule. When the father rules, the son rules. When the son rules, the father rules with the spirit presiding. John wrote of the union of father and son earlier when he said in his letter in 1 John chapter 2, who is a liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Again, the anointed one, the Messiah. This is, he says, the spirit of Antichrist. You cannot have... God without God the Son. You you can't, as you talk to people on the street and you say, what do you think about God? They'll say, oh yeah, I I believe in him. What do you think about Jesus Christ? Well, I'm not too sure about him. Now you can't have God the Father without God the Son. You can't have the kingdom of the Father without the rule of the Son. You're only deceived. In fact, John will say later in that same letter, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Now this would be, this revelation here, wonderfully encouraging to see the prophecies of King David now coming to pass. 
in Revelation chapter 11, especially to the Jewish readers of this day and the Christians, both Gentile and Jew. Because you see, when John was writing this revelation, he was on the island of Patmos. And why was he there? Was there a nice resort there? And he wanted a vacation? No, he was exiled to this island by an emperor named Domitian. Domitian hated Christians with a passion. And so he exiled the famous Christians because he didn't want to get into too much political hot water. And he killed the ones who weren't really all that well known. Domitian is also the first Roman emperor to have himself officially titled in Rome, God the Lord. He also had himself officially titled Lord Curios, Lord of the Earth. You can imagine, of course, he had no idea until it was too late that he was actually doing the bidding of the king of earth, the usurper, the one who hates the worship of God. But you can imagine now the believers hearing these titles addressed to the true and living God whose son will reign as Lord. Well, this is what the angels sing. And what is the church going to do about it? Well, we're actually going to be in heaven to hear this because this is our future. And after we hear it, here's what happens. Verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. The 24 elders surrounding the throne, representing the bride, the church, all immediately at the sound of 100 million angels singing this, they fall on their faces in worship to God. This is an amazing sight. One minute the elders are sitting on their thrones and the next minute they're down on their faces worshiping the God of glory. The response is ecstatic. It is spontaneous. It is electrifying. It is pure praise. And this is what true worship, ladies and gentlemen, is all about. Whether you're singing or praying or worshiping or cleaning the house or whatever. When you acknowledge the sovereignty of God and his will played out in and through your life, and no matter what the mundane events of life may be, you are his willing uh, servant. This is pure worship. Can you imagine this scene? I think it is true. Handel did communicate a sense of it in his work. We call Handel's Messiah. I went back and reviewed a little bit of the history of that, and most people don't realize that he had only recently suffered a stroke which paralyzed the left side of his face, causing intense pain to some of the rest of the left side of his body. He was already fairly poor. None of his works had sold well. He could barely afford rent and food, and now his health was broken, his prospects dim, discouraged and anxious about life. One of his friends went to the Bible and pulled out some texts about the prophecies of the Messiah, put them in a folder and handed them to George one afternoon and said, you know what, what you ought to do is maybe just sit down with these verses and compose something that weaves them together. And George wasn't interested. He looked them over that afternoon and evening in his little apartment, tossed them aside and crawled into bed. But he couldn't sleep. Eventually he got up and he went to his piano in his little apartment and began to write. He was left-handed and because of the pain in his body, it made his scribbling almost unintelligible and the notes and the, and the script hard to read, but he carried on. For three weeks, 
he carried on, hardly stopping to eat or sleep and certainly not to entertain any visitors. Finally, after 22 days, a friend of his gained entrance into his apartment, found the composer at his piano, sheets of music strewn everywhere, and as he walked over, George looked up at him and tears then poured from his eyes down his cheeks as he said to his friend, and I quote, I do believe I have seen all of heaven before me and the greatness of God himself. Well, in the text, Handel chose, you can imagine how he electrified it with just a taste of what these millions of angels will sound like. In 1741, when the Messiah was first performed in London, before an august crowd, a royal crowd, in fact, as they arrived at the Hallelujah Chorus, England's King George removed his crown and stood up, for in that culture, one never sat in the presence of a superior. And thus the tradition of standing at the Hallelujah Chorus began and continues to this day. Just a taste, just a sense of the glory of this scene as the angels are rehearsing the greatness of the sovereign and the singularity of his kingdom and the certainty of his reign. And now the church, represented by the elders, they can't sit either. However, they simply fall down before the throne of God and they worship him and they begin to praise God with this unbelievable hymn of thanksgiving. Let's look at this hymn briefly. And let me give you five aspects of this hymn that I believe will encourage your heart as it has mine. First, they will praise God for his attributes. They sing in verse 17, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were. We give you thanks because you are almighty. At a day and in a culture and an era when they could have doubted that he was almighty. And maybe you're doubting the same thing today. Maybe you're not quite sure he is really, truly almighty. He is. And they sing to it. But I want you to notice something interesting. It says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Well, that's actually from chapter 4, verse 8. You keep looking at that text there. Let me read you what it says in chapter 1, verse 4. From him who is and who was and who is to come. So John repeats that here. Well, almost. Notice, again, the final phrase is left off. Who are, he simply says, and who were. You could render it who is and who was. And there is no reference to And who is to come? Why not? Because he has come. That's why. He's come. They're singing of it as an historical reality. So they're not saying who was and is and is to come. They're simply saying who was and is. And he's already come. You fill in that blank. He isn't going to reign He is reigning, and so they praise God for his attributes. Secondly, they praise him for his triumphs. Notice verse 17, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Begun to reign is the perfect tense, which means or pictures the permanence of his sovereign control. 
One author put it this way. The Almighty One until this time allows anti-Christian power to control the world. But after this future climax, his direct control will be in place and remain forever. You have taken your great power. This isn't just some coronation ceremony and a pretty robe and a nice throne and an interesting looking throne. This is permanent, active hands-on ruling. Let me illustrate the difference. Let me read you what one of my favorite commentators, who happens to be a British subject, I think he might even have dual citizenship, his name is John Phillips. Let me read you what he wrote as he commented on this text. On June 2nd, 1952, Elizabeth II was crowned Queen of England in Westminster Abbey. At one point during her coronation, the Archbishop of Canterbury turned and asked the people, and of course they were there in mass, do you take Elizabeth to be your true and lawful sovereign? The multitude rolled back in a single word, aye. I imagine that's yes, but that's what they said, aye. She then took the coronation oath, received a Bible, took communion, was seated on the coronation chair, anointed clothed in a robe woven of gold, given the ring, given the scepter, and crowned with the glorious crown of St. Edward. At that cue, the guns of London fired a salute, and then the new monarch left the abbey in grand procession for a banquet of state. But from that day to this, and it's been a while, Prince Charles is still waiting, right? From that day to this, Queen Elizabeth II has never made a single decision affecting the government of her kingdom. The prime minister of England and the members of the English parliament do all of that. All she does is sign their decisions into law. Why? Because this is a constitutional monarchy. A monarchy where the king or queen is sovereign in name alone while all the power belongs to the people. You know, as I read that, I couldn't help but think this is vastly different than what we find here in Revelation 11. And it is very different from the average person's thinking when it comes to God, and I fear it's crept its way into the average Christian's mind. We say we believe in God, but what we really mean is we have a constitutional monarchy. He is sovereign in name only. We're going to dress him with cathedrals and steeples and we're going to furnish him with a little money and we're going to, we're going to nod at his ambassadors and maybe help them as they go around the world representing him. But, but outside of the church, outside of the ceremony of religion, he is king in name only. The real power belongs in the hands of the people. And we really like it when he just kind of stays on his throne. And we expect our will to simply be signed into law by our constitutional monarch. Far from it, ladies and gentlemen. I think the average person on the street would say they believe in God, but if you burrow very deeply, you'd find out that they believe at best in a constitutional monarch whom they might see periodically in royal dress. And they might hear about every so often. 
but he is not their sovereign Lord. And furthermore, they expect him to fulfill their will. No. Verse 17 again, you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The power is not in the people. The power is in God alone. So the believers praise Christ because of his attributes. They praise him because of his triumphs. Thirdly, they praise him because of his judgments. Look at verse 18. The text reads, And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. This last phrase, by the way, destroy those who destroy the earth, is not a reference to destroying people who pollute the environment. Okay? You won't believe how many pastors in my research even this past week who are now taking this text and that phrase to preach environmental messages that God is going to destroy people who destroy the earth. Now, this is a reference to people who pollute the earth with unrepentant sin which brings about the destruction of earth by the wrath of God. God is not judging these people because they won't recycle. He's judging these people because they won't repent. And there is a bit of a difference. Now remember, John's vision here and what I just read you isn't a close-up of the details. It's a wide-angle shot with a fast shutter speed. he's, He's sort of putting everything in together. And so he speaks of judgment, although we know, as Revelation will give us details, there are several judgments. There's going to be a judgment of those who who leave the tribulation and enter the millennial kingdom. There's going to be the great white throne judgment at the end of time as, as God condemns and judges the unbelieving who have lived in every time period. He also speaks of rewards rewarding the prophets here. He talks about rewarding the the saints and and he does not distinguish between the New Testament Christians' bema seat, the time of reward, or the rewarding of faithful servants in the kingdom. It's just all sort of condensed as he gives you an aerial view of one end uh, to the other of this future day. In fact, these verses condense the activities of the entire tribulation period, the millennial kingdom, and they even hint at the eternal state. And did you catch, by the way, the attitude of the unbeliever toward the reign of Christ in verse 18? Did you notice how they responded to that? Look at verse 18. And the nations were so pleased. Oh, maybe your translation's a little different. And the nations were what? Enraged. Enraged. They're literally enraged at the thought of Christ reigning. And listen, listen, at this point they know. They recognize. They'll, they'll see it. They'll get it. But put a gun in their hand and they'll try to shoot God. Their hatred of him is so deep. And their rebellion in their unrepentant sinful state is so hardened. In fact, they will mount armies to fight against the person of Christ one day. This this all brings their hatred to sort of this fever 
pitch. You have crowning in heaven. You have cursing on earth. You have rejoicing in heaven with a hundred million angels plus in the church. But you have rage on, on the planet that, that will not allow Christ to rule without a fight. Even though they have the rest of the book and the rest of the story. Somebody sent me a link to Fox News. By the way, I appreciate all the links and all the emails and all of that. It's wonderful. You give me so much information and hundreds of you, you know, every week. It's all filtered out and, and I get the half a dozen I'm supposed to read. No, I get it all or, or most of it. Keep sending it. But this past week, somebody sent me this link and I found it fascinating. A discussion on a new ad campaign by the American Humanist Association for Christmas time. Did you hear about that? This is the Association of Atheists and Agnostics and Humanists, which happens to be, by the way, the kind of people we talk about being blinded by the God of this world. They happen to be people we want to reach. They're not our enemy. They are our mission field. They're people you work around, live around, you pray for, and you share the gospel with. And just for you, this is for the assembly in here. It just amazes me how they will mount this to bring discredit to certainly the name of God. But the ad simply says this. It's a billboard that's going to go on the side of buses here in just a few days. The ad simply says, why believe in a God? Just be good for goodness sake. How's that for Christmas cheer? Why believe in a God? And we know which God they're talking about because of the timing of this ad campaign. Why believe in that God? Just be good for goodness sake. In other words, you don't have to be good because there's some kind of accountability, certainly. We wouldn't want to hold to that. Or because he's actually informed mankind of what good is and what evil is. But just be good for goodness sake. The Humanist Association has literally poured tens of thousands of dollars into this campaign. Not enough money to do all the city buses in all of our cities. And so they have targeted the Washington, D.C. transit system. It's going to be on Washington, D.C. buses only. And Washington, the Washington, D.C. transit system agreed to carry the ads, which was really shocking to me that they agreed to do that. Now remember, the believing church is singing the praise of God who delivers both rewards and wrath. And if the world will have a problem with the suggestion that God has dictated what good and evil are, you can't imagine the unbeliever's rage over the claim that Christ is going to rule their planet. And they will mount an army to fire missiles and bullets and whatever else happens to be around at that point in time in the future to try and kill the Son of God. Well, here in this paragraph, we're given the secret. It's out. Christ will literally reign on the earth. The unbelieving world will rage against him, and he will reward his own and usher into the kingdom. Now, let me quickly mention another secret or two of verse 19. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was open. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now for the Jew, this was stunning news. They believed the ark of the covenant would be lost forever. Well, here you have the original. In fact, it is, it is heaven's original. The image is copied 
by Solomon and those with the arcs that uh, appeared in in, uh, the temple system. But it hasn't been lost. The image of the ark and the temple of God is specifically dedicated to the nation Israel and God is sort of pulling back the curtain and showing them this amazing sight. Here's the ark. This is the original. This is made by my hands and this is a call again to the nation. This is the regathering of his covenant people and the keeping of his covenant promise to them. And once again, you get back to the Jewish nature of the tribulation. You get back to the nature of Israel as an ethnic people being called. That's why it meant something to them. The ark, a reference to the worship of God through the system of the ark and the temple. And we know the millennial kingdom will have a temple and that ark will be a memorial to our Lord, the Lamb of God who died to pay for our Sins. So just as the promises of Christ's first coming were fulfilled, what we have here basically is a promise that goes back to the prophets who speak of a second coming. And since I mentioned Christmas, let me close by taking you to a text where that promise is often missed. And it happens to be the traditional reading of the Christmas story. So you can leave Revelation and go back to Luke's gospel quickly in chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Let me point out something here. This is Gabriel making the announcement to Mary. And most of us know the first part. Not many of us take time to consider the second part, which is what we're studying now in the book of Revelation. And we miss this. Let me recommend you get out your pencil and be prepared to circle something absolutely stunning. Now notice Gabriel's announcement to Mary and in verse 31. In fact, let's back up to verse uh, let's back up to verse 30. And the angel said to her, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high." Isn't that wonderful? Great prophecy. It all came true. And that period is put at just the right point. No, there's no period there. What is that? This is not a trick question. Tell me, what is that? A semicolon. This is not deep. Here, you're an educated crowd. I know this isn't over your head. That's a semicolon. It's not the end, so let's read on. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You see, in this text, you have the promise of his first coming as a baby who grew up to become a crucified Savior, resurrected and ascended Lord, and his second coming to do what? Well, that doesn't matter. We don't need to take that literally. We take the first part literally, but that second part is just some ethereal reign somewhere. Oh no. It is as literal as his first coming. He will come just as he came literally. He'll come again and he will sit on David's throne. He'll rule over the house of Jacob, meaning the regathered ethnic Israel nation, Israelite nation. And that kingdom, including you and me, will last forever and forever. They're both literally true. Now I want you to go back and circle that semicolon. Circle that semicolon. Then draw a line out to the margin of your text if you care to. And simply write 
2,000 years because that's how long the semicolon has lasted thus far. I could preach a message on that semicolon. You're saying, please don't. Okay, I won't. However, you get the point. The story's not finished. What came prior to that semicolon came true literally. What follows that semicolon will come true literally. We happen to be living in the period of the semicolon. Now 2,000 years. Okay, I said I wouldn't preach on this. I'll stop. All right. God has revealed to us, though, what the rest of the story looks like. This is the panoramic view. This is, this is the vault of heaven open for us who care to see. Sinners are enraged and judged. Oh, how tragic. Even though they have the book. The nation is regathered. What a surprise. Saints are rewarded. What grace. The kingdom has come. What glory. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the glory of what it reveals that the kingdom temporarily under the sway and dominion of that usurper will be given over at last to the kingdom as the kingdom of our Lord and you will reign forever and ever. So in light of that, Father, would you allow us by your grace and spirit to allow you to have full reign in our lives as believers. Help us to worship you in the mundane, in the exhilarating, in the events of life, to acknowledge your sovereignty and your glory and your majesty and your right to rule. We do not hand you our decisions for you to sign. We want you to hand us your decisions. And we will simply obey. Would that be our spirit and our attitude, Father? As we go back into our world tomorrow, as we face certainly the uncertainty of the conditions of cultures not here, not just here, but everywhere in our world, and even those Christians who suffer today, who would read a text like this and say, Bring on the kingdom. May it come soon. May we, Father, in this land of liberty and freedom, use it to thy own glory's sake, to take full advantage of the prospects of advancing your reputation and your kingdom cause, the establishment and advancement of the church, the growth of the believer as we look forward to this day. When we shall hear the great song of the angels. So may this be a rehearsal. And the glory that fills our hearts and the joy that fills our minds and spirits. At the sound of that which is historical fact. It is reality. You shall reign forever. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen. Amen.